Hi, everybody. Hello, good morning. I'm gonna ask that everyone put themselves on mute, please. Thank you. So, can you all hear me okay? Okay. Okay, so my name is Gretchen Grapponi and I work in the training division here at the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation uh, at Boston University. And I'm gonna be the moderator for today's event. And we're gonna spend the next hour answering your questions on the topic of stigma in the workplace. Please post your questions in the chat box and we'll answer as many as possible today. And since I have lived experience of mental illness and also experience developing interventions for workplace stigma, I'm gonna probably be adding a little bit more to the discussion than I usually do as moderator. Today's event is funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. And the content of the webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agency. This webinar is gonna be recorded, transcribed and posted as an archive on our center's website. The territory on which the center stands is that of the Wampanoag and Massachusetts people. And our center is a place to honor and respect the history and continued efforts of the native and indigenous communities. Big thank you to Melody Reefer today for her tech support. And as I said, if you just joined us, please keep yourselves on mute. Our speaker today, Dr. Zlatko Rasanova, is the Director of Research at the Center for Psych Psychiatric Rehabilitation and is a Research Associate Professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at BU, Sargent College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. <clears throat> She's led several projects on aiming to develop and evaluate recovery-oriented interventions that promote em employment and community participation. She's investigated issues related to prejudice and discrimination, including manifestations of stigmatizing experiences in the workplace. And now before we get into um, the questions, we want to acknowledge that there isn't any agreed upon definition of stigma. Um, there, in fact, there's about 100 different definitions of stigma in, in the research literature. So um, the, the definition that we're gonna kind of go with today is one that I use in my trainings a lot. And I actually say stigmatization because it's more of a process. So today we're gonna think of it as processes operating on interpersonal, intrapersonal and structural levels involving labeling of differences, stereotypes, prejudice and discrimination, causing loss of status and separation from non-stigma excuse me, non-stigmatized people. And really that's kind of just a fancy way of saying uh, stigmatizations are actions or inactions that ultimately result in lost opportunities for people with mental illness, substance use disorders, or other mental health conditions. All right, so let us get into our first question. First question is, what are some of the myths about people with mental illness or mental health conditions and their ability to work. Thank you, Gretchen. And I just want to say uh, good morning to everybody, to thank everybody for being with us today. Um, I believe all of you care about what we could do to eliminate uh, prejudice and discrimination at the workplace. And that's why we are all together. And uh, we will be very happy to share our experience in research and training 
around those issues. And I just want to follow also, before I respond to the question, um, I would like to say a couple of words about the terminology that we use and we'll be using today. And also you'll see in some of the uh, resources, publications that we have sent you. And as uh, Gretchen uh, mentioned, there are different terms, different definitions and different terms. People are using the terms of prejudice, discrimination, uh, and stigma. In general, stigma tends to be a term that is over-encompassing and includes the concepts of prejudice and discrimination. Prejudice tends to be um, representing negative attitudes, devaluing, discrediting people because of a certain characteristic that people may have. And prejudice reflects uh, uh, negative attitudes and also prejudicial behaviors that may not trace to the level of discrimination, which typically from a legal standpoint of view is examined as a violation of people's civil and legal rights because of a certain characteristics uh, that people may possess. I also want to acknowledge that they, there has been a trend in, um, in our field to, uh, to minimize the use of the term stigma uh, because it's believed to be kind of reinforcing some level of stigma, stigmatization. And this is uh, a trend that has been strongly supported in our uh, service communities by SAMHSA, uh, PRA, the Psychiatric Rehabilita uh, Rehabilitation Association, our center as well. And I just want to acknowledge that through the years, we have been in entirely supporting this approach. At the same time, you see in some of our publications and today using also the term stigma, just acknowledging that the ter term stigma is more widely uh, kind of used in the scientific uh, community. It's more conventional term for different scholars to relate to. And, um, and also, I think sometimes uh, it's used for kind of uh, brevity and ease of expression. Like for example, you know, most people uh, easily relate to the term self-stigma, stigma resistance, stigma resilience. So with this kind of uh, introduction, I would like to say that we have been um, against all stereotypes relevant to the prejudices and discrimination kind of against people with uh, the lived experience of mental illness. And uh, our use of the term stigma in no way uh, kind of uh, reiterates or supports those stereotypes. Just the opposite, our work has been really focusing on dispelling those stereotypes. So I think this is a segue to the first question, which is about the myths surrounding, you know, people's capacity to work and to be successful workers. And uh, what do we mean by myths? The myths are all beliefs, stereotypes, all beliefs uh, grounded in uh, insufficient knowledge uh, or all knowledge. Uh, knowledge. So. Um, probably all of you are aware about the myths surrounding people's capacity to recover, which were more kind of prevalent 20, 30 years ago, 
I think uh, for those of us who have been in the field longer, we are well familiar with those myths. Um, and with uh, the mental health system moving into a recovery-oriented system, I think the myths around recovery are less and less reinforced. However, there have been some specific myths or beliefs about people's capacity to work successfully. So what are those bits? <clears throat> Number one, an older one, uh, probably less and less reinforced and kind of encountered nowadays, is the belief that people with serious mental illnesses cannot work. Um, this one has been, I think, dispelled in uh, kind of in uh, recent years, pretty much entirely by the evidence that we have about the effectiveness of the uh, supported employment model, IPS, probably many of you are familiar, there have been so many studies documenting the effectiveness of this model to help people get jobs. So what are some other myths that uh, have been relevant to work capacity? One myth has been about people uh, being able, people with uh, psychiatric disabilities being able to get and keep to the extent possible only low-level menial jobs. I don't know how many of you have heard, at least uh, you know, in the 90s, this was a common kind of statement about the four Fs of jobs that people with psychiatric disabilities were most likely to have. Food, flowers, field, and filing. And this was a pretty strong belief. And um, we have conducted a study. You uh, may have seen, you may take a look at uh, the resources, references that uh, Gretchen sent you, uh, and we'll be sending again. And um, we conducted a survey in the late 90s. We conducted a survey, a national survey, because we wanted to see if people have the capacity to get and keep professional and managerial level jobs. And um, in the paper that you have in, um, in the reference list, you know, you could uh, kind of take a look, but bottom line is it was a study that completely, completely debunked the myth that people cannot keep professional and higher level jobs. We found, you know, it was a study with uh, approximately uh, 500 people, and we found that people were able to have higher level jobs in any industry pretty much, not just in advocacy, not just in mental health, not just in health, but about 50% of our participants were having higher level jobs in all other industries not related to the health field and advocacy. So this was the evidence that solid evidence, I believe, we produced to kind of to dismiss this uh, myth. The second myth that has been really circulating for years, and maybe to some extent even today, <clears throat> is about the belie uh, belief that people with psychiatric disabilities cannot sustain you know, competitive employment or cannot keep their jobs for a longer period of time. So we have conducted another study. Uh, you'll see the reference in your list. It's the longitudinal five-year longitudinal study on sustained employment. And um, 
we documented that actually people with psychiatric disabilities not only are able to, keep, to get jobs at higher levels, but also they are able to keep their jobs for longer periods of times, for years, not just for months, uh, but for years. And um, uh, this, again, I, I could talk about this study by, you know, for, uh, for an hour. I'm going to stop here and just say, please take a look at the paper and you see a very solid evidence that people could sustain their jobs. And then the third, the last fourth myth, you know, that actually we conducted a study to start debunking is probably the hardest and most challenging myth. And it is the myth that people with psychiatric disabilities, once receiving disability benefits, social security benefits, they are not able to leave the social security roles. Yes, we do know that for the time being, the percentage of people who are leaving the disability roles is very small. However, we provided evidence that it is possible, people do it. And for those of you who are interested in this particular topic, you could take a look at uh, the third paper about self-sufficiency, financial self-sufficiency of people with, uh, uh, who are employed in competitive jobs. And you could take a look at the factors that help people um, move beyond the disability roles. So why is it so important for us to be talking about those myths? As I said, because those myths actually inform the negative stereotypes that uh, kind of represent the foundation, the ground on which any prejudicial and stigmatizing, discriminating behaviors are based on. So this is the first step for us to start with changing people's beliefs, providers, families, community members, and ourselves. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you brought up um, disability and benefits because that, that reminds me, we did get a, a question about that, that we're gonna actually move to our next um, Ask Me Anything webinar because we decided that's such a, an important topic that we wanna spend a whole hour on that. Okay, so our next question, what are some of the more subtle ways that people uh, experience prejudice, prejudice and discrimination at work? Great. So this uh, is also a very important question. Why? Because it's uh, in our efforts to reduce, combat, and eliminate uh, prejudice and discrimination at the workplace, we really need to better understand how it's enacted at the workplace. And um, probably all of you are well aware about the typical forms of discrimination, right? not hiring people, firing people, not promoting people, not providing training opportunities and so on. These are the most blatant forms of discrimination that we are all aware of. There has been research, it's well documented. However, I think it's really important for us to be aware of more subtle manifestations of prejudice um, at the workplace because those subtle uh, manifestations um, are really there. They frequently may not be addressed at the workplace and people are exposed, could be exposed on a daily basis. And those forms could also have a very negative impact on people's ability to 
do their jobs and keep their jobs. So how do we know about those subtle forms? As part of the um, longitudinal study that I mentioned that we wanted to document people's capacity to sustain employment, uh, which was conducted with 529 people across the country. So it was another national sample, uh, pretty much representing all states uh, in the country. Um, we asked people about their experience of negative attitudes at the jobs that they had at the moment. And also with a subset of this group, we ask about the worst experiences of prejudice and discrimination that people have experienced due to their mental health condition. So as, as a result of the data that we collected from this large group of successful workers, um, we were able to develop a taxonomy of the different types of experiences or manifestations of prejudice and discrimination that people could encounter at the workplace. So there is a paper in the resource list you see, and uh, you could definitely find more details, but very briefly, what we identified is that <clears throat> people experience, you know, um, prejudice and discrimination on a continuum from very subtle, very subtle expressions to the blatant expressions, as I mentioned, we are all aware. And, you know, the manifestations of prejudice and discrimination at, at work um, are uh, relevant to all kinds of aspects of people's lives, uh, you know, at the workplace. Work performance at work, we are there because we have kind of jobs to do, but also we interact with our colleagues. So we were able to identify specific manifestations of uh, prejudice and discrimination relevant to people's work performance and then relevant to collegial interactions. And again, we were able to document this continuum from subtle to more um, blatant manifestations of prejudice and discrimination. So the question is about the subtle manifestations of prejudice. Usually when we talk about subtle expressions of uh, stigma of discrimination, we really mean prejudicial behaviors that may not necessarily impinge on people's civil and legal rights. However, they have a negative impact on them. Um, what we mean by subtle expressions of prejudice and described in this paper, which by the way was published 10 years ago, so it's kind of old. Um, in more, more recent years, people uh, probably have come across terms as microaggression and microaggressions. These are the types of subtle expressions of prejudice at the workplace and beyond. So, um, I'm also going to suggest that you talk, if you're interested in this question, you take a look at another uh, reference we sent you, and it is a technical assistance guide to eliminate prejudice and discrimination at the workplace. And um, we have developed at the center, uh, and as part of the development of this uh, guide, and I could talk more about this guide, how to kind of eliminate uh, prejudices in discrimination at the workplace, we further operationalized 
this taxonomy of manifestations of prejudice and discrimination at the workplace that really helps us take a closer look exactly at those more subtle expressions of prejudice. So we identified three areas that could be more easily identified and addressed at the workplace. So uh, manifestations of prejudice relevant to expectations about workers with psychiatric disabilities, uh, the expectations of supervisors, and also the expectations of coworkers. So uh, let me say a couple of words uh, about those. So based on our study, we identified that people could experience as prejudicial lower expectations about their work performance, as well as higher expectations when people felt that a supervisor or a boss is not accounting for their disability status and need of certain accommodations. So uh, bottom line is that the expectations of supervisors at the workplace need to be kind of reflective of where the person is to be able to best do their job. Also, another interesting thing was uh, probably you have encountered is about the expectations of coworkers. And when somebody is uh, provided with a reasonable accommodation, with an accommodation. So uh, people have reported that they may encounter the resentment of coworkers. And thus, you know, we felt that this is another important area that needs to be addressed through education of uh, employees at the workplace. What else? One thing that really, really was a major discovery in our study was the importance of language or the verbal expressions of prejudice. And uh, we were able to identify <clears throat> different types of verbal expressions that represent such subtle manifestations of prejudice that could be directed toward a person with uh, the lived experience, or could be just uh, comments, jokes about mental illness in general that are not directed toward a specific worker. However, those kind of comments, insensitivity, language insensitivity is also could have a very negative impact on workers. So this is another thing for us to be particularly mindful of the language that we use and also other verbal expressions could be kind of not so subtle when they're directed to toward a specific person. It's about gossip, making comments in front of the person, behind the person's back, you know, um, ridicule. And an interesting, an interesting manifestation that we came up with, you know, as part of the study was the um, using the person's mental health status or background as a manipulation, we call it as a manipulation power strategy. So what is that? You know, people describe situations when they're going to have a argument or a discussion with a coworker or with a supervisor. And in the midst of this discussion, the other person is going to make a reference to their mental health background on history, just to get an upper hand on the kind of the discussion and the uh, conversation. Very powerful thing. 
So um, I'm mindful of the time. Again, I could talk about those things for a long, long time. So another subtle manifestations, uh, manifestation of uh, prejudice in the context of work performance is micromanagement. People reported that micromanagement by a supervisor or a boss actually is perceived as prejudicial when it is not uh, uh, requested. So this is something very important as you see the subtleties that we may not even think about it. So something very important to kind of to be mindful and to take steps in addressing um, at the workplace and I could talk a little more if people are interested. If there is a question, I could say a little more about steps to address, for example, micromanagement. And then one last example about um, the subtle manifestations of prejudice in the area of social interactions with coworkers. Uh, one that for me was surprising, but very important upon reflection was patronizing that sometimes Co-workers may think that they really kind of uh, may make well-meant comments. Like for example, a person described, oh, my boss is asking me, you know, in the morning, did you take your medications? Actually, you know, this was experienced as a negative prejudicial, prejudicial, prejudicial statement, you know, when it's not uh, again requested. So we need to be really mindful about things that we say that we may even mean well, but they could be experienced in a negative way. So I will stop there. <laughs> Thank you. So we did um, have a question asking where these references are. So I guess some people didn't get, there's a reminder email to all registrants where we included the references and the links we're talking about. Um, I will send in the follow-up email, I will send those again. And, and I think we're gonna try to get those references also posted in the chat box for you. So we're looking for those. Okay, our next question. What can you tell us about the intersection between prejudice and discrimination and disclosing um, a mental health status at work? Um, again, it's a critical question because there is such a link between uh, prejudice and discrimination at work and disclosing. And we do know that disclosure is a requirement to certain level of disclosure is a requirement for people to get an accommodation, either formal or informal, people need to disclose some aspect of having a medical condition that is um, kind of uh, would be suitable for an accommodation or change to their work responsibilities. And um, it's really then disclosing exposes people to the prejudicial uh, attitudes or discriminatory practices at the workplace. And what we have found out is that actually many people may be reluctant to request an accommodation or to disclose exactly because they are afraid of being subjected to prejudice and discrimination at the workplace. Actually, I would like to kind of to kind of to make another kind of open a caveat and make a comment that when we talk about prejudice and discrimination and stigma, it's important to distinguish between the prejudice and discrimination that people experience and they are subjected to, and then what we call anticipated prejudice and discrimination. So 
the anticipated prejudice and discrimination is really about the fears that people have, that something may happen to them. And then the third type of uh, um, personal kind of stigma experience, as we are all familiar, is the self-stigma, when we internalize certain negative stereotypes about ourselves. But going back to experience versus anticipated prejudice and discrimination. Um, I would like to mention a very interesting European study, large European study that was led by uh, Dr. Tornicroft. Uh, he's a kind of a leader in the kind of in the area of uh, prejudice and discrimination. And interestingly enough, this international study demonstrated that the most prevalent type of stigma was anticipated stigma that about 78% in this study, participants reported anticipated stigma. People reported lower levels, about 56% of experienced stigma, and then self-stigma was encountered and reported among about a third of the study participants. Why do I mention this? Because it's evidence that anticipated stigma, the fears that people have about what's going to happen, if they disclose or if people find about their condition are really, really important. And um, I think it's also another important thing. So why do we need to address stigma? Because then people will have more opportunity, less fears to kind of to request the changes that they need to be successful workers. One other comment I would like to make is that, you know, um, uh, at first glance, we could think that stigma is relevant only to, you know, people who have disclosed or people who are afraid, that, you know, of disclosing. In fact, in our study, <clears throat> we uh, identified, we had kind of uh, findings that actually indicate that even people who do not dis disclose, they feel the negative impact of prejudice and discrimination and the anticipated prejudice and discrimination. Maybe you're going to say in what way? I mean, people, first of all, were afraid that somehow uh, their condition may become known, that people may need to have a hospitalization or experience symptoms and then it will become known. Also, there are people reported experiencing some internal pressure to work harder, you know, to kind of keep themselves to higher level of expectations, self-expectations and standards and making things even harder for themselves. People were reluctant to request uh, a day off if they needed, you know, time off. And interestingly enough, people reported being afraid of saying no uh, to certain requests because it could have been experienced like a vulnerability and again, going along with those internal uh, kind of higher expectations. So stigma, prejudice and discrimination are a challenge for those who disclose and for those who do not uh, disclose. So it's a pervasive problem that we need to figure out how to address. Yeah, and I just want to say as um, someone who I decided a long time ago that I was just gonna reject self-stigma uh, out of a sense of, I, you know, all the reasons that you say having self-stigma is so harmful. Um, 
there's actually you know, anecdotal experience for me, but there's also research that shows that when you do disclose, it has, it has some beneficial um, effects. So I don't know if you can speak to that at all, if you've done any research around that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, um, uh, this is a question about the choice of disclosure and the control that people have over, over the decision to disclose or not. And when people feel that it's their choice and they could disclose, they want to disclose, the experience could be very, very empowering. We have heard those stories that people really feel empowered by the ability to disclose. And many people actually report very positive experiences as a result of disclosing. Great. I, I know that um, I, every once in a while, I'll run into someone who's heard me tell my story about experiencing mental illness, and they'll say, you know, hearing you prompted me to go get treatment, or, or just, you know, having those kind of really positive interactions. I just want to highlight that good things can happen from disclosure, but of course, it has to be a very um, personal decision for each person. Um, another question, as an employment specialist who works with people with serious mental illness, what are some tips for addressing stigma when connecting with potential employers? So um, I would like to kind of to answer this question um, in a kind of first starting in a with a broader answer and to say that, um, you know, in recent years, you know, there have been really kind of uh, increasing number, kind of there has been a growing effort to develop interventions to help people with uh, psychiatric conditions to deal with prejudice and discrimination. And especially a growing number of interventions helping people to reduce self-stigma. However, you know, to the best of my knowledge, to this day, there is no intervention that is helping people navigate and deal, you know, prejudice and discrimination at the workplace. And um, interestingly enough, even uh, supported employment IPS, the IPS model, you know, so going to what supported employment specialists could do, actually, for those of you who are familiar with the model, the issue of prejudice and discrimination and dealing with prejudice and discrimination, you know, at the workplace, and guiding clients, you know, with whom uh, people work to deal with those issues is not addressed at all. As you're aware, there is kind of this disclosure, addressing issues of disclosure is part of uh, IPS fidelity, but not stigma. So this is a gap that actually, we are right now in the midst of an effort to, um, to submit a grant and actually develop a module to integrate into IPS to address issues of prejudice and discrimination. As far as uh, you know, what employment specialists, how employment specialists could address those issues with employers, um, what, um, what uh, we have found you know, from people in the field is that one way is not to identify the agency where you work with, that it's specific to people with psychiatric dis disability to, to the extent possible, just to protect people's confidentiality if, if a client desires to do so. And then to kind of to work uh, closely with the client and with the employer around disclosure 
and uh, the person's choice. You know, if uh, their condition is disclosed, it will be one approach. Obviously, if your client does not desire disclosure, you will be working in a completely different way with the uh, potential employer not disclosing the person's status. Great, thank you. Uh, another question, can you say a bit more about micromanagement as a form of stigma? Yes, so um, micromanagement has been described as a form of prejudicial treatment at work because people feel that they may be supervised kind of watch, you know, their work could be uh, maybe kind of monitored and supervised to a greater extent than the work of other coworkers. And most importantly, I want to emphasize that this level of uh, oversight and supervision is not requested by the person. There is a big difference if the person is requesting, you know, level, higher level of support, because this is an accommodation. We know that require, requesting additional supervision, additional support, additional instructions is a well-known and important accommodation, formal, informal, that people could request. It's about when people are not kind of desiring this level of uh, oversight. So, um, you know, what, uh, what um, when we were de developing uh, this uh, technical assistance guide to help workplace, you know, uh, workplaces, employers, basically promote uh, an environment that is stigma-free. Actually, we were talking about, you know, our dream being of us having a kind of a, um, an initiative for us to establish zero tolerance of stigma, you know, at the workplace. So uh, we work with uh, a large uh, mental health agency, you know, to develop this process. And um, interestingly enough, and by the way, you know, we took a kind of an approach that I think is very important. I'm using this opportunity to also kind of talk about, you know, what we could do to uh, create better workplaces. You know, an approach that seems to be working when you combine a top-down approach with a bottom-up approach and you integrate the two when you want to make changes at the workplace. So um, we, we work with a group of uh, uh, employees, of staff from this agency, and they were the folks who identified, you know, from reviewing the whole list of subtle to less subtle, more blatant types of uh, prejudice and discrimination. For example, they chose micromanagement as one area that they wanted to address at the policy level in their agency. And uh, because they felt that, you know, they were recovery oriented and yet they had to do more work. There was an opportunity for more work in those areas of subtle manifestations of prejudice. So they made the decision to have a policy statement about micromanagement, then, you know, to be part of the documentation of the agency. Then what we did is we had an indicator about micromanagement and this indicator was the employee satisfaction with the level of supervision that they're getting. And then, so from the policy 
we move to the indicator and then we said the group, not we, we were the consultants, the group, the agency set the, a benchmark for this indicator. And they felt that starting with this initiative, having 90% of their employees in the agency report being satisfied with uh, their uh, uh, level of oversight and supervision was an acceptable benchmark. Uh, and I just want to say that it's, it, I know it's possible to implement a stigma reduction um, initiative because I, I want to give a shout out to the Mental Health Center of Greater Manchester up in New Hampshire. We got a grant to do just that. And um, if, if people have interest in hearing, you know, what went into that, feel free to, to reach out to me, email me and, um, and we'll give you some information about that. But we were able over a six month period to train every single employee in stigma reduction and make really specific nuanced structural changes uh, through HR, through other things um, and, and with, with clients and with staff. Um, and we were able to reduce some perceived stigma and some self-stigma. So, uh, so I, I do want as much as we can highlight that there are good things happening and it is positive to, to make change even though you know, over the last few decades, Levels of stigma have, have um, really stayed the same. Yes, actually, it's a great point, uh, Gretchen. It's not easy, but it is possible. And we have more and more kind of means and ways to be doing it in a promising way. Uh, okay, next question. Has it been helpful to work with a person's therapist to help reduce self-stigma and develop ways to address microaggressions that people may face? I'm sorry, what was the beginning of the question? Uh, has, it, has it been helpful to work with a person's therapist to reduce self-stigma? So, um, absolutely, you know. Um, I think uh, if I kind of, I'm also kind of, uh, I'm also a, you know, in addition to my kind of wearing a researcher hat, I have been kind of working as a clinician. So absolutely, as a therapist who has worked with people, you know, for many years, I think it's absolutely essential, you know, for therapists to be able to kind of to be open and to be able to support people to kind of to metabolize the kind of the internalized negative beliefs about themselves where things get a little trickier is that traditionally, you know, mental health professionals, you know, therapists are not trained to address work-related issues. So I would say it's possible that some kind of therapists may be shying away from addressing and engaging into issues relevant to work performance, but absolutely yes, you know, uh, I think it's critical. And in addition to individual therapy, whatever therapists uh, kind of do in their kind of practice, uh, as I mentioned, there have been interventions. You know, the majority of those interventions have been group interventions to really uh, help people uh, reduce uh, self-stigma and proactive coping. Um, we have developed one intervention of this kind uh, based on photo voice, you see two references in the list uh, that you received or are about to receive. And uh, 
it's uh, really, really important for us to figure out ways to empower people. And we are really, the field now is talking about developing stigma resistance. What is stigma resistance? You know, I like to use the shield metaphor that stigma resistance is about being able to create a shield that all the negative influences, you know, just kind of, I have been thinking like, kind of a little bit like arrows coming our way, mm-hmm. you know, we do not let those negative poisonous arrows get to our skin and hurt us. And we have the means to reject. And because people are vulnerable, especially people with kind of, you know, longer histories, more challenging experiences, you know, people have internalized some of those beliefs. The other part of this, of those interventions is to help people again, metabolize. Metabolize cleans out of their systems, those negative beliefs and really focus on their strengths, not on all the negative labels that they have heard about through the years. Great, and then that reminds me, um, one of the things that we did um, in developing our stigma initiative um, in a community mental health center is um, having, having done a ton of stigma trainings, uh, most of the time clinicians say, oh, you know, I, I, I wanna talk about, I wanna ask about stigma, but I don't really know how. So we developed a standardized clinical assessment that um, has not been studied, only used, um, you know, in one, in one setting. Um, but that's also something that if, if people are interested, shoot me an email and I'll, I'll share with you what, kind of what we came up with. But even just for clinicians to have um, a worksheet to go over with people that they're working with uh, to say, okay, here's what self-stigma is. Is it something you experience? And if so, would you like some help with that? Um, and so for, for clinicians to have that, um, to prompt them to ask, they're, they're probably gonna find out some things they wouldn't have found out otherwise. And I think it's also for the for the, the the client or the person receiving services really validating when when a, a healthcare provider acknowledges that there are a lot of different types of stigma that that they are experiencing or can be experiencing. And along those lines, you know, Gretchen, I just want to add that absolutely. I think it's our responsibility as a field to educate mental health professionals, you know, different levels about the complex manifestations, the types of stigma, prejudice and discrimination, because many people don't know about those things. And uh, we have to kind of to figure out ways to educate mental health professionals, therapists, case managers, people who work on a daily basis to be able to address those issues. Yeah, and, and I find that when I, when I do a training, most people that come think, oh, it's not, it's not health professionals that have the problem, it's society, it's the public. But then when they see all the data about um, the, the ways that different health professionals can perpetuate stigma, they s- kind of step back and say, oh, okay, maybe this is something that I need to address. Um, okay, next question. Uh, someone was asking about, do you know of any specific um, uh, businesses? Uh, someone was saying that, that Google used to train people with mental illness um, to hire them. Do you know of any um, businesses that that really focus on offering jobs to people with mental illness? Um, You know, uh, actually there are a number of uh, kind of, and probably a growing number of employers, especially uh, larger organizations uh, that have policies 
and they uh, promote the employment of people with disabilities. Um, I think it's the business leadership network uh, that uh, kind of members have been kind of discussing those issues and promoting employment of people with disabilities. And also I would like to emphasize that our colleagues from uh, uh, U, uh, the University of Massachusetts, you know, the medical school in uh, Worcester in Massachusetts, they have been a leader, you, you know, they nail clipper. Um, so uh, they, their initiative work without limits. They have been working with employers. They have year, uh, annual conferences where they kind of share experiences of employers kind of promoting employment of people with psychiatric disabilities. So absolutely, yes. Gretchen, you're muted. Uh, so, so, um, so could you tell us a little bit about, um, I'm just curious about in your, um, you know, vast experience of researching this topic for so many decades. Is there anything that's been especially surprising to you about your findings? Um, one, you know, two of the surprises we all already discussed, the subtle manifestations, the multitude of subtle manifestations of uh, prejudice, the importance of language, and then there is another kind of area, kind of more recent area of uh, recent research and work that it's really, really important is really looking at the kind of, at the experience of prejudice and, and discrimination from a intersectional point of view and accounting for different types of, you know, stigmas or sources of prejudice and discrimination that people may be encountering. You know, to me, it's um, really surprising that there is a voluminous literature, you know, obviously I have, you know, I'm dealing with the literature uh, to be able to do all those things that I, you know, describe, but there are, you know, there is a voluminous literature on prejudice and discrimination associated with mental illness. And for years, we have been as a field, as, you know, kind of scholars, we have been addressing, you know, the issue of prejudice and discrimination solely kind of connected with mental illness. And we have been really kind of, uh, um, I don't know, not addressing in a systematic, organized, consistent way, different types of stigmas that people are encountering. And um, I'm going to mention about a study that was conducted a couple of years ago with a former postdoctoral fellow at our center, Dr. Oenike Baogun Mwangi. And uh, Nike uh, did a small qualitative study actually with uh, 24 black individuals with uh, the experience of mental illness who reported experiences uh, of prejudice and discrimination at the workplace. And we really wanted to look at, first we thought it will be the intersection between race and uh, mental illness. And actually it was a fascinating study of discoveries. So number one, out of those 24 people, you know, they described 
23 different sources of prejudice and discrimination that they have experienced. Of course, starting with race, mental illness, uh, gender, criminal background, weight, you know, probably uh, many of you who are in uh, kind of doing, uh, you know, work uh, services, you hear it, but we hear it, we haven't been addressing. And so the list kind of of sources of stigmatizing or the stigmatize, the sources of stigmatizing experiences is humongous. So the second thing that we discovered, you know, as part of uh, Nick's study is that those types of kind of stigmas, they cluster. And actually, they form complex clusters. For example, we identified that some people reported clusters of three to four, four stigmas that they would kind of experience simultaneously at one job. So, uh, so the intersection is really, really something important that we need to address and to better, to better understand and address. And then lastly, the, the last surprise from that study was um, about the fact that the, the, the work environment matters, the job matters, because the same person would describe different types of you know, stigmatizing kind of clusters depending on the job. So one job may be associated with one type of stigma and yet in another job, the person may experience, you know, like uh, the simultaneous impact of three or four types of stigma. And we also kind of started to notice gender differences in the experiences of multiple stigmas at the workplace. Oh, thanks. Uh, and I'm glad you bring up intersectionality for a couple of reasons. One is I believe Melody posted in the chat box the link for our last Ask Me Anything About Employment, it was with two lawyers who addressed intersectionality at work. So check that out if you did not listen, it's a great, it's a great webinar. And just the other thing I'll say about intersectionality and stigmatization is as part of a grant that's funded by the same um, funding source that's funding this webinar, I'm working with some people from the center to, um, to, to develop a specific training and consulting package around intersectionality, um, stigmatizing intersectional stigmatization for workplaces. So we're exactly starting to address that. Um, so stay tuned for more on that. All right, looks like we only have a couple of minutes left. So I do wanna thank everyone for joining us today and for all your questions. If if you still have questions that didn't get answered, feel free to shoot me an email and we'll, we'll get those answered for you. Um, we're gonna be sending out a survey for you to give us feedback about um, this webinar. And also we will include a section for if you want uh, additional information about training and technical assistance from us, you can um, give us your contact information as well. And so um, I'd really like to um, say a huge thank you to Dr. Rosanova um, for this discussion today. And I'm sure we will, we will continue um, talking about stigmatization and, um, and the good news about addressing it in the future. So thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.